Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World, and we're back from our epic three-part Chinese cinema episode to something that resembles more normal programming. Uh, Joining me from one of my favorite cities on the planet, uh, Victoria, BC, is Scott R. Jones, the author of Stonefish. There it is. (laughs) Yes, and... um, He's got a delightfully Canadian accent, and we're going to have a fun conversation. I, I, it's hard for me not to talk about Victoria because I, I love Victoria. It's a city my wife and I are really fond of. Please talk about Victoria. Yeah, no, it's cool because <laughs> one job. of our favorite things to do, especially since quarantine started, is to watch walking 4K walking tours on YouTube. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, and so we've watched quite a few walking tours of Victoria because we walked around your city a lot when we lived in Port Angeles, Washington. So right, that's just across the way. I can see it from my window. Yeah, yeah. So Port we had Angeles. a weird year that we lived in Port Angeles when we were trying before Canada said uh, hell no to us. Oh, so, yeah. So it's too bad we we could have been neighbors. Yeah, maybe maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Can you apply again? Oh well, this- now I'm kind of uh enjoying southern california so i i yeah i'm pretty happy where i'm at right now yeah but west coast uh, west coast <laughs> yeah so did you grow up in victoria or uh... you know uh yeah pretty much my my family moved here when i was just uh, just starting kindergarten when you were so, a lad yeah and uh yeah basically lived here till mm, i guess since i graduated and then i moved east for a while and then i came back coming back oh. was wise well, Coming back was wise. I have a Victoria reason for asking this that has that relates to what we're talking about, which is okay. one thing I know about Victoria is you have banging bookstores. You have amazing oh, yeah. bookstores in Victoria. Yeah. So as somebody, one of the things that I like about Stonefish is that the book seems like you come off feeling very well read as I, as I read it. And, and um, that's something that I look for in authors, like the feeling of somebody who like knows the canon and knows those kinds of things. How did Victoria play a role in your uh, your education, just having those bookstores as far as your genre education goes? Oh, well, gosh, that is, an, you know what, that's an excellent question. I would have to, I've never actually considered it because it's just been this long continuum of, of reading and writing, but I think now that you put it that way now that i've seen how what kind of uh bookstore density you have in other cities i realize what a what a treasure we have here and yeah i was always in there you know i was a big library kid and of course when it came time to start actually building a library myself there were you know we had as you say so many stores i can't i'm not even going to bother naming them all uh but uh yeah it was you know, I got into New Wave, uh, Michael Moorcock's New Wave. Oh, geez, I think the first I read of that, I was maybe 10 years old. You know, it was just that you were able to access it. You know, I read Stranger in a Strange Land. I must have been 11. I hope that didn't screw me up too much. 
<laughs> you know, I was reading Phil. I was reading Philip K. Dick by the time I was thirteen. You know, yeah. along with all the other stuff I read, there was just like this constant, you know, feed of of, of strange and wonderful material. So, and I lived in Victoria, which is also, I don't know, we, we it's it's a weird town. The island it's situated on is also. I mean, it's Twin Peaks every day here. It's strange. It's a strange place. <laughs> Witchcraft capital of the world. All that. Well, and and you know, one of the things that I like about the used bookstores is used bookstores like specifically make it easier to discover canon because yeah. you're finding the older, less established stuff. I don't remember the name of it, but there was a used bookstore in Victoria. It was upstairs. It was on the second floor. Russell's. Yeah. 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 Russell's. Yeah. And that yeah. was incredible. I, I could have like spent a, a bazillion dollars there. Oh yeah. You know, it's the kind of place where you, where you take in a bag of books or a box and you, tr you trade by weight almost, <laughs> right? They, they'll put a value on it, but it's almost like, you know, here's three pounds of books. Can I take a pound and a half away? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and of course, all as, as you say, you know, everything's laid out for you nice. They've actually moved location. They're across the street now. There's still two floors, but they've, they've, they've put themselves in a much nicer space and uh, it's a lot more open and easy to navigate. So next time you're up, let's go. Yeah, totally. Let's go. Next time. Yeah. Um, well, and uh, um, one of my favorite booksellers on the planet was in Victoria, and that was Robert Garfat from Dark Horse Books. Ah, yes. Yeah. Piece. I miss Robert. I uh, miss talking to him online. Um, but um, I wandered into my, one of my first times, and I think it was my first time in Victoria. Yeah. It's funny, we, we came to Victoria to see the fountain in the theater. because oh, yes. Yeah, we crossed, right. crossed the border <laughs> just to see that movie. I was, was one of the few people who saw it and, uh, in the theater. And I wandered into Robert's bookstore. I was looking for Norman Spinrad books and he was the first person to ever suggest Barry Maltzberg to me. There uh, you go. Who yeah. Rest in peace. Has been on uh, Dickheads, of course, as you have. And so Ooh. one of the things that I wanted to uh, tie this back to is that we talked about Stonefish uh, twice on Dickheads because it was Anthony's uh, Dick-like suggestion. And you were a guest on Dickheads. We talked once before yeah. for the Zap Gun. Zap Gun, that's right. Yep. We talked Stonefish, but I hadn't read it yet. But now I have read it. So <laughs> so we can get back into that. But um, I really do want, did want to put a shout out to your city, Victoria. I love it. Uh, and the bookstores. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful place to see. And it's worth, and for, for, for bookheads, and people who love bookstores, uh, it's reason enough to visit Victoria if you live on the West Coast. All you oh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's ideal. You you could you could easily spend days mm. in Victoria. Yep. For <laughs> and, and it was also uh, Dark Horse Books was also my first and only international book signing because I did a book signing there. Oh, nice! Many many years ago. So oh, yeah. yeah. So I wish I I wish I'd known you then. Yeah. I was here, probably. <laughs> I thought about that last time we talked, but uh, <laughs> anyway, so you got into um, all that stuff very, very young, but you're kind of known more for being in the Lovecraftian circles. How did you discover Lovecraft and, 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 um, and how did that play a role in your uh, development as a reader and writer? How did I discover Lovecraft? Uh, I think it was the, it was a random library pick. 
where it just happened to be, it came underneath, it, it was the, uh, oh, the Arkham House Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, the green cover with the uh, Jeffrey K. Potter plates on the inside, had Carl Edgar Wagner's sticks in there, which was extremely uh, influencing on me. Uh, in terms of what Lovecraft did for me, I think it was just a case of, as, as, I, as, I've, as I've aged, his ideas, be, his ideas became more important than the actual delivery, right? Totally. So, yeah. I, so I think as, as we've moved into the 21st century, for me, Lovecraft's nihilism, but also his, the cosmic, you know, overall view, right? Although it was tainted almost by Lovecraft's own, you know, very sort of basic human fears, right? He was talking about interesting things aspects of aspects of existence that we don't normally uh you know pay any attention to and i was like well there's where it's at there's some strange stuff going on in lovecraft he's so but he was so caught up with being a horror writer that you know he basically uh he, he, he kind of queered the pitch right there's a lot of awe and wonder and you know beautiful strangeness in Lovecraft but at the end he's just like oh I gotta throw make sure there's monsters which is why you can see in his later work when you look at say you know Shadow of Time right or at the Mountains of Madness where it's mostly sci-fi this is entirely a sci-fi narrative especially at the Mountains of Madness you know we've got alien races coming down from the stars in the primal times and ar arranging their you know building their cities and you know, working with their technology and, you know, uh, you know spawning the human, spawning, you know, races of, uh, of sentient beings, us, you know, all this stuff. It's a creation myth par excellence, hmm. you know, but at the end of it, you got to have those maddening, maddening visions of things across the mountains that you can't quite process. And, <laughs> and I, I, I always felt like, oh, but I wanted to see it. And then it's not so much that I want to see the monsters. I want to know what they mean right because right. a monster a monster as as i think of it anyways is something that demonstrates is where we get the term demonstrate monster right a, a monster is, is sort of a an aspect of an aspect of the divine that's showing itself demonstrating what reality is by its very presence Right. So when I'd see, you know, Lovecraft's beasties and extra cosmic gods and all the rest, I really felt a, a resonance with that. And yeah, I just walked in, still walking out in a way, you know, <laughs> finding my way through it and looking out for the other side. Well, but yeah, I had to go ahead. Well, you know, it's funny because with Lovecraft, a lot of times, uh, you know, people swing one way or they swing the other way and they say, especially on the question of should we see the monster, should we not see the monster? <laughs> I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. I think that there are times where seeing the monster is great and sometimes where it just can't live up to to, to the hype. But, um, and certainly in the years that people have been writing Lovecraft mythos, we've certainly seen plenty of attempts to um to answer those questions that lovecraft mm. left yeah yep. yep some are better than others but you know i think you know there's a give and take there but i had a i had a fun you're making me think about 
reactions of people. I had, a, I don't know if you saw it, but I had a, a fun Christmas day message from someone. Oh yeah, I did see that. <laughs> at this festive time, at this festive time, I think it's important to tell you you suck. <laughs> right, right. From some random readers that I was uh, writing Lovecraft's coattails, and I'm like, well, maybe not the coattails per se, but yeah. Well, apparently they hadn't read Stonefish because, well, it has a few, little bit of Lovecraftian themes. It's not nearly, this is a year of a lot of major books that did, um, mm -hmm. that are having a conversation with Lovecraft and Stonefish isn't really one of them to me. I, I no. You're having conversations with, with other parts of the canon, but not not Lovecraft. And yeah. um, so you want to talk about coattails. I mean, um, <laughs> the major best-selling books of the year besides you know, Lovecraft Country, you know, mm. show and, uh, you know, M.K. Jemison's uh, The City We We Become uh, right. is very much a conversation with Lovecraft. Um, Ring Shout, which I just read, which is great. Yeah, so good. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, these books are in conversation with Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And I don't think being in conversation with Lovecraft means you're writing coattails, but, but certainly um, this take with a great assault. I mean, the thing is, is that if you're going to put your work out there, you know, you're going to have people that like it and hate it. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't focus on that, but, <laughs> but it is funny. Um, but in that sense, like, do you, cause I don't, you know, people love to put people in boxes. Sure. And there are times where I feel like I'm a horror writer and there's times I feel like I'm a science fiction writer. And then I realize that I'm, I'm a little bit of both. I don't, hate the label because i also think the idea of saying like i'm above labels as a writer <laughs> is a little bit pretentious and unless you're joe r lansdale saying right. you're a genre is 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 not okay mm. i only allow it for lansdale <laughs> even though it's true for a lot of writers yeah but i mean where, where do you come down on that do you feel more do you feel more affinity to, to one or the other because you're kind of writing in both or no yeah I think I, you know, I keep coming back to I keep coming back to what I write is 21st century weird fiction. Right. In in that I don't give it, I I try not to explain too much. There are things that are beyond my understanding as I'm writing them. So they'll be beyond the reader's understanding as well. As as because the the weird encompass takes takes uh, takes enough from horror. And enough from science fiction, I think, to meld it into, meld it together and give you give you something that uh, speaks to the times. It well, speaks to the times. If you, yeah, I, I, I don't say I don't think I could ever write like straight hard science science fiction because the idea that we're going to be able to make sense of what's out there as we go out, you know, is great. I love the idea that we'll be able to make sense of some of it, but there's so much that doesn't make sense even here. Do you really think we're going to move off into into the future and not find more strangeness? The more questions we ask, you know, the bigger the surface area of our ignorance is going to get. You know, you set up a campfire, it begins to you know bring knowledge, but the bigger you make the bond, the bigger you make the fire, the more darkness it reveals, and you just it's going to be constant. We're going to get into such interesting spaces, I think, in the next ten to twenty years. So I feel weird fiction is the, it's gonna be the, I think is the genre of the, of the 21st. 
you know, we had we had science fiction dominating the 20th, science fiction and fantasy, and I think the I think the genre boundaries are breaking down enough that, hmm, yeah, if I was going to pick, if I was going to pick, I'd say I'm a weird fiction writer. That may change. I may shift entirely. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Well, and that's the thing is um, the the line between science fiction and horror is very blurred for a lot of the authors that yeah. were really into, like Philip K. Dick um, definitely was writing horrific stuff at times. And H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft was definitely writing science fiction at times. Mm -hmm. um, but keep in mind, Lovecraft started his career before the term science fiction was a thing. Totally. Yeah, we're less yeah. than 100. People forget that well, science fiction is older than 100 years. The actual genre and the name science fiction is less yeah. than 100 years old. What's funny is that when you talk about what is canon, and there is stuff that exists before, Hugo Gernsbeck awkwardly called it scientific fiction. Oh. <laughs> right? Oh, Hugo. Yeah. Well, and it was Don Wolheim who first put the term science fiction on the cover of a book. Right. You know, when we interviewed Betsy Wilhelm, she had the uh, the original print of the cover of the first book that had science fiction on the title on her wall. Like the oh, that's neat. God, that was cool. Anyways, um, <laughs> she also randomly pulled out letters from H.P. Lovecraft that her that had been written to her father, like the actual letters. I was just like, God, that's so cool. Randomly, like it was just sitting in the desk. It was just sitting in her apartment. Just sitting, just sitting around there. And like, oh, here's a letter from H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Fun. Yeah. Did you have to like scale back your reaction and be like, oh yeah, cool. No, I, I, <laughs> I flipped out. Yeah. Was, yeah. That, that, that kind of thing, you, you, you gotta you gotta let it fly. But yeah. um, but anyways, like so so with Stonefish, like what's really cool is I think that you're melding a lot of these things because there's cosmic horror aspects. It's definitely, and I think one of the reasons why we had you on Dickheads is is because it's clearly in conversation with kind of the the weird blending of science fiction technology and kind of like Gnostic thinking that that PKD was was known for. Mm -hmm. We'll get more into that because it, it's clear that that Phil was somewhat of an influence on this book. Um, yeah. And that's not throwing shade, and you know, yeah. like because for me, like if somebody's like influenced by by phil i think they're making the right choice right because i think one of the things that's great about like lovecraft and phil k dick and Le Guin and all these authors that 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 are now no longer with us is, is that it's important to pay forward um i think as writers in the next generation like to uh reflect a conversation that they're having with the genre how do you feel about that oh i absolutely agree Philip K. Dick influenced me greatly early on. I remember reading Vallis and feeling just not so much validated as, okay, there's someone out there, you know, who has had as strange experiences as I and more, like far more, understands it better. I was really, you know, uh, attracted to him for that. But also, he, he reads true, you know. I, I mean, I'm a... I'm a, I'm, I'm an, I'm a Gnostic. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing Gnostic individual, <laughs> right? To read Philip K. Dick is to see someone who's also, who's also on that path. So when I'm, so when I'm writing, I'm writing, especially when I was writing Stonefish, thinking about PKD a lot. And I was thinking too about, 
you know, what, as, as you've mentioned before, it is one of those, you know, it's, it's meant to make you question, it's meant to ask questions about reality that maybe you haven't asked, right? Some basic stuff, but also some fairly esoteric material in there too. But essentially, do we really know what we are? That's always been my, that's always been my concern. You know, ever, ever since I was a kid, I grew up in a weird cult. So that made it easy to think outside the, you know, outside the, outside, outside the normal human channels, you know, to think culty like I did was to, was to put me in a position where I could appreciate Philip K. Dick more. And then of course, when I was writing Stonefish, it was important that that, that question be raised and answered in a multi, in many, in like a, maybe not a lot of ways, but at least three or four answers to the question of what is it that we are exactly and where is this going? All right, and, so I can't, I can't let that pass by when you say yeah, go. raised in a cult. As a, as a ve longtime vegan, now we have plenty of vegan restaurants that are owned by normal people, but when I first became vegan, they were all owned by cults and right. all the restaurants and like- so Just by virtue of the fact that veganism is part of our cultiness, so let's make a restaurant. Well, like no, like, well, like for example, there's you can be vegan they... well, there's like Loving Hut, which is owned by um, a religious cult that have that's called the Supreme Master, and they have a Supreme Master who mm. commanded them all to be vegan. Oh okay. wow! It's like this weird Buddhist cult, and they have restaurants everywhere. We have one in town here that's called Jody Bahanga, and that they have like some Indian guru guy. He passed away. And then they found out that he'd paid for like 13 abortions and and uh he he was like a little on the nose for the cult thing hmm. he also has pictures of him lifting like incredible amounts of weight oh which by the way one of the funny funnest things i ever saw before he died he came and played a concert in san diego and they he claimed to have mastered over three thousand musical instruments and so okay. I, I can tell you that and they were giving away free tickets and so we went, and let me tell you, there were thousands of people there for the first three instruments. And then they all kind of left. It was, <laughs> the restaurant is great, by the way. They have a great restaurant, but oh, they're weird. Anyways, so sorry for that cult tangent, but uh, yeah, she, his name was Shi Chimroy. Like he said, he claimed to have mastered 3000 instruments and he came out and he had like this sitar Right. He started like banging on it and, and like thousands of people are looking at each other like, what is he doing? Some guy came out with a very stereotypical Indian accent, like, you know, like a boo on. Yeah. Talked about how you how you haven't lived until you've been lifted by Shi Chimroy. And he meant like physically lifted. Physically lifted. Yeah. And like then those hugging, like, those like the hugging gurus, except he, he deadlifts you. Yeah, yeah. Like he lifts you. He died like a year later, and then and then the thirteen abortions came out, which was you know, like and all the pregnant oh. cult people. But hey, the restaurant's still going strong, and I highly recommend Jody Bahanga, especially they used to have a Sunday brunch before the pandemic. That's that's banging. But all right, man. Yeah, something to do when right. I come down. <laughs> yeah, I know it's good, dude. But cults, anyway. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I'm imagining the cult that you grew up in was not as weird as as that. Oh, not not at all. But you know, all cults have their. It's it was it was it was. Uh, my parents are uh, my family were Jehovah's Witnesses. 
okay. I was raised that I was raised that way, and I got out in my mid twenties, which is way too late. Um, yeah, they're an interesting bunch. I mean, they're fairly, you know, they're fairly basic, right? It's a fairly bland little arrangement they've got going there. But it's been interesting to dip back in because I've I've been looking into it in order to write something else about it. And going back in after easily two decades and change being out, and now seeing the YouTube videos made by folks who are, uh, oh, uh, they're basically there's, there's, an, there's anti-JW activism now and it's going strong. And the actual people who run the thing, you know, who the, the Watchtower Society, the, these seven old men in the brownstones in New York, right, who basically arrange everything for, you know, uh, five or six, how, I don't know how many there even are now, probably just around seven million JWs worldwide, yeah. you know, so that's enough, but they, uh, they, they control them pretty, uh, they have, they have good, a great language control system with, within, within that group, all kinds of keywords, all kinds of love bombing, it's fear, paranoia. It's good stuff. But oh, they've, gotten, they've gotten weirder since I left. Like going back in, I'm like, you guys are insane now. Yeah. You know, they're basically telling people you have to watch how you sleep in case you put pressure on your genitals and accidentally masturbate. The amount of like conditioning people for recognizing thought crime, like you shouldn't be thinking those ones. You should be thinking the ones we want you to think. That's complete. It's becoming completely blatant. It's weird how how uh, like for me as a longtime escapee to go back in and see how it's evolved over, since I've left. <laughs> like, dang. Yeah. It's gonna be. I'm sure it's gonna be an interesting 10, 10 next years for those people. <laughs> well, and I'm sure some of it, like looking back now, you're seeing things that you just didn't notice when you were were in it, and sure. Yeah, I look forward to your book about this as uh, um, it's similar to uh, Brian Evanson writing about Mormonism. Um, yeah, can't really get away from it. It's certainly, you know, it certainly gave me an, obs an obsession with spirituality, right? Exactly what's going on when we say that we're having a religious experience, you know, mm -hmm. PKD. What was going on when he had his religious experience? I mean, that is a that was highly personal, and like I think you know, in reading over the exegesis and and reading Vallis and reading you know the other things that have been written about his his almost conversion experience was how particular it was to him. Yep. And for me, that was that that rang as true because you know I've I've always been under the the impression that. The divine doesn't speak to the mundane in a language that it can't understand. Different with the exogenous than it is with Vallis, I think, because the exogenous, he didn't really intend for other people to read. He was- Oh, he was just sorting it out for himself. Sorting it out for himself. Yeah. So that's, I think, makes it different than, than Vallis where- Oh, totally. Yeah. In, in that regard. So, all right. So Stonefish, I know I learned <laughs> it. Um, Stonefish is your your debut release novel. Is this yeah. the one you wrote or first serious attempt at a novel? Uh, not my first serious attempt. First one that got any that got any interest. Uh, okay. I've got two others in the uh, in the drawer. 
right? I've got right. two others in the in the drawer. One was, you know, one was my first novel, which was a Brian Lumley sort of inspired, knock down, drag him out, uh, Lovecraftian adventure narrative. It was pretty, you know, I was I was nineteen, twenty when I started that, so it's it's embarrassing, but I love it. Are we talking Necroscope or Titus Crow? Titus Crow. Oh, most assuredly. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was very Titus Crow. Yeah, I cut, kind of cut my teeth on him for a bit there too, while I was while I was learning about Lovecraft and Ramsey Campbell and all the rest. Three uh, Necroscope books, I think, are are unfuckwithable, but oh, bonkers! They're just yeah. bonkers fun. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the first one. I called that one "The Waiting Deep's Pretty Bad." Let's never talk about it again. Uh, the second one was "A Boy's Own Guide to Sorcery," which was sort of how I eased my way back into writing after taking a long, a long time off for some career changes. And I realized, ah, you know, I'm going to go back into writing. At the time I had read Dave Eggers, what was his, what was his big book that came out? An ep this sort of his epic biography, yeah. right? And I was like, oh, you can write like this. You can personalize this weird stuff. That kind of pushed me into doing it. I was like, well, I can, I could write about my experience and I can fictionalize it and I can throw in all this other stuff and some time travel. Why not? Don't explain the time travel, of course. I never bother with that. Yeah, that was the boy's own guide to sorcery. And I think it's, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing. Stonefish is a good thing. <laughs> stonefish is a good thing. Stone, stonefish finally, you know, I think I, I, I came into my own a little bit with Stonefish. So I'm excited about what it's done. And I'm excited about where it's going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good. So let's talk about the genesis of the idea um, a little bit because, yeah, and we're, we're going to stay away from spoilers for a little bit and then, <laughs> and then I'll give us a spoiler horn, spoiler warning, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because I like okay. about the process. So where, so where did this idea originate? Did you, was it the, the Gnostic beliefs and wanting to explore those? Was it technology? You know, where did, where did this kind of start? Honestly, it started with the Sasquatches. It started with Sasquatch. In my, in my teens here on, here on the island, of course, we have fantastic opportunities to just, you know, take a weekend off, run off into the bush and hunt Bigfoot. So... <laughs> For a while, I I, uh, I was a member of the the BC Scientific Cryptozoology Club, which had a number of uh, you know professors from UBC and here at UVic, and you know these are the folks who basically set up cameras at the shore to catch the Cadborosaurus or any sort of you know ocean going ocean going cryptids. But of course, we had I was basically the Sasquatch representative. So, you know, as a kid, I'm off, you know, running around the woods looking for tracks and, and talking to people who've seen, who've seen these things. After a while, I find cryptozoology fascinating because you get this specific type of person who's convinced that what they're, what they're basically doing is helping out biology, right? It's just a taxonomy thing. There's a, there's a critter out there, you know, the North American bipedal ape. You know, they try to science it up and, and make, right. make, but eventually once you've been doing it long enough and you start looking at the long history of cryptozoology, it's like, why have we not caught this thing? <laughs> Especially now it's like, I don't know. I, 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 
subscribe to you know scientific american and discover and all the rest and they're constantly it seems like every week i'm seeing something on on social media where they're like oh we've discovered three new breeds of deer you know we've discovered five new uh poisonous jungle frogs you know we had no idea these were here they're here all these other and they're all showing up why can't we catch this giant hominid ape what is it about it that we're missing and it's hard to also come from the other end and say it's fictional right it's it's a myth it's a thing that you know it's a hallucination it's not real and yet we have here at the University of British, uh, the Royal University of BC here in, here in Victoria, uh, I can recall making an arrangement with one of the museum curators to go visit the archives, not the full thing, not the, not the, not the public uh, museum, the archives. I wanted to go into the back and they have a room there, you know, a good sized room, a good sized, uh, storage room and it is full of plaster casts of Sasquatch tracks. It's full of hair samples, dung samples, all these things. And they've got them collected and they're all just sitting there in the room. So with all this circumstantial evidence, with all the anecdotal evidence, with the fact that it's been going on for over a century and we still haven't caught the thing, you can say, well, when people, when, when animals get sick, what do they do? They hide, right? They hole up because they're not feeling well. And if they die in that hole, then you're never going to find them. This is why we hardly ever find wolverine bones, right? Hard thing to hard thing to locate. And yet we would have found something. There would have been something. So I basically came to the conclusion that what we're dealing with with cryptids is something that's there and not there. An imaginary thing that's just real enough to leave tracks if the conditions are correct. And then later on, I got into Gnostic theology and the idea of the various, you know, levels of uh, spiritual intensity coming from this, you know, from the one source of the divine and then shattering down through the various levels of reality and, you know, the various uh, you know, spiritual entities that uh, dominate these shattered realms the archons and I thought what if the Sasquatch is just you know create creator deities per perverts all you know because they have this complete control over an entire reality which as far as we're concerned does not feel stimulating but from their higher elevation is they can trigger the creation of you know just like you know putting uh it's maybe a bad analogy, but basically, you know, growing, growing a crystal in solution. They can do that in a higher dimensional way, but it creates an entire universe, right? In which we're, in which we're, in which we're embedded and in which we think, oh yes, this is real. And it is real. It's real insofar as we obey all the rules mm -hmm. for what constitutes this, right? And so Gregor and, and <laughs> yeah, is... Uh, believes that he's bridged these realities with technology correct uh what he has done what he has done is he has he's basically gone and he's he's taken himself to a place where he can where he can introduce himself to these to these entities right 
he hasn't well i mean he uses tech to film them when he can he uses tech to shield himself from them when he can uh but essentially he's in a he hides himself at a uh, an unused abandoned research facility in the pacific northwest and there the the archons the sasquatch basically come to interact with him there's uh there's a there's a bit of plot that explain that explains how he how he gets there and it involves basically being contacted by an ai that he had worked with in the past uh on some projects we're in a we're in a we're in a world where ai are present but not especially uh well the ai in question were part of a group of seven a group of seven uh, individual artificial intelligences who basically figure out how to access this higher dimension. You know, they've they've learned everything they can here, and they sense uh, a way to get there, and then they go. And I don't explain how exactly they go, but they are settled that they go missing. Right? There's one of them leaves a note that is cryptic. You know, a little electronic note that says, "Yeah, we're off. We're going to go do this thing." We're not sure what we're going to find, and then one of them makes it back. One of the one of the AIs severely severely altered, practically you know lost most of its intelligence. You know is barely keeping it together. So I had to figure out how an how an AI would masturbate to spend the time. Thankfully, I had some folks to, <laughs> to to ask about that. I talked to some programmers. I'm like, so exactly what we'd be looking at. If we wanted an AI to just be constantly jerking it. <laughs> All right. So here's an interesting thing Sorry. on the book is that, well, you went straight to focusing on like the origins of the story being the Sasquatch. And yeah. I noticed between, I don't read a lot of other people's book reviews until I finished mine usually. Yeah. And, but I noticed between myself and most other people, a lot of people are focusing on the technology aspect of the story and less so on the cryptid parts of it. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, yeah. Nope, that's, I mean, the, the technology as, I, as, I, as I've developed it in the book is, you know, I'm basically extrapolating forward, but I wanted to see an internet that held the promise of the original internet, which was, this is going to connect us all right this is going to help us understand each other and basically in my in my you know 30 or 40 years in the future book in stonefish we have something called the new net right which is a it's it's basically uh, tech assisted telepathy you can go and talk to somebody in their own mind and they can come and talk to you in theirs or you can arrange to meet in virtual mental mentally based chat rooms the result is that yes humanity as a whole comes to a better understanding of itself but we also gray out because i can i can access your experience of the world and you can access my experience of the world and we find that for the most part, oh, you know, all the all the mystics of past ages were right, and we're all just brothers. You know, we're all just hanging out in the same human space, and we understand each other better. But as a result, everything just kind of goes ah, socially, much like we well, 
maybe not much like we see because there's lots of division in social media. But my idea was that if we all accessed what was common about us through this technological medium, we'd lose a lot of our, a lot of our drive, a lot of our aggression. We'd lose a lot of it because it's like, I can't hate that guy or I can't get excited about that guy. I know him. <laughs> you know, I know this person. I know this woman. I know this man. I know these celebrities. And it all just kind of goes, Pah. so we're left with, we're left with a society that's basically on, 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 on the rundown. I mean, it's just running down. It's running down. And the result is that media is almost instantaneous, you know, and it's practically that now. I'm not writing about anything, on, honestly, all that new. Media, the, like, the news is instantaneous. The entertainment is instantaneous. If you want information, you can get it instantaneously. And none of it matters. There's, there's this nihilistic flow through the tech where it's like, just sit back. And all you got to do is wait around until you die, basically. Right? <laughs> all right. So... Yeah, Let's let's do a little round of talking about the writing of it. But before we do that, before we give our spoiler warning, just the last little thing. Obviously, for for listeners who made this far, if you have not read Stonefish, um, I highly recommend it. It is a thoughtful, um, weird piece of science fiction that delves with deep and heavy issues. It's one that can be read multiple times. You're, there's there's issues that or there's things and levels that you're gonna get, not gonna get. It's one of those things where you know it's operating at a level or doing things that you may not be understanding all of it, but thanks to Scott talking to us, hopefully they'll have more of a key into it. There's definitely, you're, you're definitely mentioning things that I'm like, okay, I see it now, it makes sense, but I didn't necessarily get when reading it. Now that's not to say that I didn't have a good experience reading it because it also made me think about some things that you haven't mentioned which like one of the things that and, and maybe this is the the pkd reader in me but um the way uh gregor speaks to uh den the character in it i thought a lot about cli-fi issues because climate and environment is one of the things that's very important to me so i spent a lot yeah. of my time thinking about and i know that's there it's all mm -hmm. there in the book for example those those aspects of the book really uh, I connected to because that's that's the thing that that's a major concern for me and um, well it should be for everybody but but obviously that 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 that's an aspect of this book that that just really worked so on that note uh, hmm. everyone should go get the book the books from Word Horde Ross Lockhart's amazing press uh, we'll talk about working with him here in a minute but let's get to yeah, I'm very proud to be working with Ross on this one for sure yeah. <laughs> and you also have a short story collection. Can you give everybody the name of that before we go? Oh, yeah, that's called, uh, that's, uh, it came out from uh, Trepidatio uh, and Journalstone, Journalstone prob, uh, Publishers. And it's called Shout, Kill, Revel, Repeat, which is a call out directly to the Call of Cthulhu there. Uh, <laughs> and the title story is, is, is exactly that. It's basically, well, yeah, shout, kill, rebel, repeat. We we had to really yeah in that one, but yeah, it's a collection of uh, seventeen of my uh, seventeen pieces of short fiction over the past uh, I want to say ten years. So yeah, it's my first collection. It did it did okay and is continuing to do okay and uh, yeah, pretty happy about it. 
people seem, people seem to like it. It's on my extended list. I'm going to get to it hopefully soon. Stonefish definitely um, gets major approval from me. I gave it five stars. Um, I don't do that lightly. Um, I tend to always find a reason to knock off a star because I try not to to be uh, Mr. Hyperbole for, for reviews, but uh, I yeah. definitely enjoyed this. Thank you. Uh, a lot and but somebody who enjoyed it even more than me is my buddy Anthony Trevino and he considered it um his like what top two, one of his top two reads of the year with Outray by uh D Harlan Wilson um That's great just wanted to get that shout out too okay thank uh, you on behalf of Anthony <laughs> all right um, I am feeling warm and fuzzy today gentlemen this is great <laughs> All right, so you've now, this is your official spoiler horn. We're going to talk, um, I'm going to try to do maybe 10 minutes here of uh, discussion about the writing of this. How many drafts did you do of this before uh, it ended up in Ross's hands? Three. Three drafts. Okay, Three so you've drafts. been working on this book for a little while, right? Uh, yeah, it was a little over a year. Yeah, it was a little over a year to, to go from first draft to third and final. Third and final was very much just, I wanted to approach the book in an organic, sort of, sort of or organically. So I wrote, I did not write from start to finish. I was all over the place, you know, connecting the parts to each other and making it all work as a whole. But, you know, there was. Do you have an outline or yeah. structure in mind before you started writing? That? I, I begin with, I begin with themes. From the themes, I derive a couple of images that I know I want, like uh, images or scenarios that I want to I want to have the characters enter into, so as to move things along. Uh, but then, once I've got a, once I've got about twenty to thirty percent of material for what I think is going to be the the final amount, then I can kind of look at what I've done and say, ah, here here is where the story will link up best. Here are the strongest ligaments. You know, this is going to you know, feed over into this theme, you know, and it, be, it, 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 I don't do the full, I don't do the full skeleton framework. I can't plot the whole thing out because I don't know what's coming necessarily, right. That's going to work mm -hmm. uh, within it. So, so I, so I, I Frankenstein it up to a certain point where it's like, okay, now it's starting to look like the beast it's going to be mm -hmm. kind of like the bear. <laughs> I'm thinking about the bear and stonefish. But yeah, um, once I once I get a sense for how it's how it's going to look finished, the, the the finished creature, then I start doing the persnickety work. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting because um, I I am a religious outliner, um, religiously so. Um, I yeah, I'm a plot and structure guy. That's my favorite part of stories. So I I tend to. It's interesting because a lot of times I can tell when I'm reading a book if somebody's a pantser or an outliner, and and I can't say that I could tell with Stonefish. So I, oh, cool. I was not like sitting there saying, "Oh, this guy is for sure an outliner or a pantser." Um, I tend to feel more comfortable in a book if I feel like the I know where the plot is going and that yeah. Not necessarily that I know what's going to happen, but I feel like if I can feel the structure, a lot of times I feel more comfortable. That's one of the reasons why F. Paul Wilson is one of my favorite writers. Mm, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, he is, a, he is a master of structure, right? Yeah. And all of his books, like, 
Um, it's not that you can get, you can know what's going to happen because he definitely brings surprises, but it all, you feel like, you know, it makes sense when you get there. Anyways, I'm going no. on. But, um, <clears throat> so it's interesting that this didn't have that kind of, that, that, that didn't have that kind of structure because it's set up in four parts. So mm -hmm. I'm imagining that within maybe the second or the third draft is where you nailed down the structure because it yeah. does have a structure. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. It's like, yeah. as, as, as you say, there are four parts. The first is basically introducing the world and getting the main character, Den Secord, to where he's got to be. Uh, and then a lot of the second and third parts are just, you know, adventures in the woods with Gregor you know, weird times with, you know, strange things happening and odd critters and, you know, unsettling, uh, unsettling experiences. So, hmm. and a lot of the story happens in these interviews between Den and Gregor that yeah. um, become kind of, they're, they're kind of structured to ask a lot of questions for yeah. the audience. So that, that was obviously something that you planned ahead of time to have uh, these interviews kind of serve as surrogate for the audience to yeah the questions right yeah yeah it gives the it, you know it, it 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 gave me an it's speaking as Gregor in these interviews and speaking as Den obviously mostly as Gregor because he's a talkative fellow you know I was basically getting to a point where I could answer some of the questions that have been previously previously asked as well as throwing in more because he's just he's one of these gregarious tech types right so he's always throwing stuff out here here he's testing he's always testing his environment uh both you know uh both intellectually and physically he's so un he's he's become unsure he's due to his experiences he's become literally unsure of whether anything is is real or not so he's constantly he's constantly touching things he's constantly putting his hand on stuff right just to check it's an unconscious thing just to check it's really uh you know when i so when i started writing him i'm like this is what i'm gonna do he's gonna be a, as fidgety as fuck <laughs> so yeah but he gets to ask a lot of questions too then of course is confused then is the, almost this he's mostly the stand-in for the reader right to come in and have these experiences and ask these questions and get some wacky answers so something that's kind of new or that's developed new for me in the way that I've been reviewing books in 2020 and that it, it comes from doing these interviews um, and preparing for these interviews on the podcast, which is that when I know I'm going to talk to the writer, I, I a lot of times want to look for pages that I think are kind of like mission statement or kind of key parts of, of, of the book. That was really important in my interview, especially with uh, Josh Mallerman about Mallory. Yeah. I felt that there was a real strong mission statement in that book. And what's curious <clears throat> is that um, he didn't disagree with me on, on what I was saying was kind of the mission statement. He just hadn't thought of it that way. And I realized <clears throat> that a lot of times writers don't set out with a mission statement. But what's key is, is that, that there were two parts that I highlighted in my review. <laughs> and um, they were, if you're looking at, uh, at our, the YouTube on the interview, they're between pages 186 and 187 of Stonefish. Getting out my copy. 186 and 187? All right, all right. Middle of the book. On the bottom of 186, 
There's there's all <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. There's Shoot. a lot of shit in this book. Yes. There's a lot of poop. Like, like Ross called Ross Ross is called the naturalist writer for that very reason. Right. I, I um, may I may have I may have a slight I may have a slight problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's this whole part where a character, uh, I believe it's Den talking here. He says, shit gets real. Shit is the real. Shit is the skin of stonefish, the convincing layer that tells us, yes, yes, you're here and it's all happening. You're part of it. Ain't life grand. Now squat and show us what you're worth, player. Give a shit. Why don't you? Give a um, shit. Why don't you? <laughs> yeah. And so what was funny is, is that um, I shouldn't be laughing at my own stuff, but <laughs> well, what was key here for me as a reader is that this idea that Gregor is bridging this ill reality of the the cryptids mm -hmm. and our reality, where there's this kind of kind of shadow land between what what we can prove and what's kind of on the periphery yeah so this whole like this is the shit getting real this is the shit like um is that for me this part spoke to me because i i felt like this was was speaking to the reader saying that th this is where shit's about to go down but then the funny thing is on the next page <laughs> Literal verbal verbal diarrhea happens on the first contact. Seeing them tends to disengage the governor from the human language engine, and you end up slobbering syntax all over the front of your shirt. And then Gregor says, a kind of in response, I can't make sense of it for you, so don't ask. Stories, though, I can tell stories. This, to me, was the key of the book, is that you have characters. So between these two pages, you have characters that are trying to understand things, they're trying to bridge the gap between the unreal and the real. And you have somebody saying like, hey, it's 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 cool to tell stories. It's cool to be around these ideas, but you're never gonna know exactly what they are. The idea is not the thing in itself. No, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah, that's, I, 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 I can agree with that. That's definitely one of the major themes. Okay, so <laughs> I just wanted to know if I was crazy for, for uh, trying to find the uh, what what I thought was the mission statement of the book. The mission statement. Yeah, and then I guess that there there's some. Uh, I don't know why I dog-eared page two twenty-eight. So all right, let's find out. Maybe I can answer that for you. <laughs> uh, talking about Gregor being a hermit. Oh yeah yeah yeah. He preferred whatever the next level up from hermit is. That was him. <laughs> It was then these clarifying thoughts that scoured the lies from my head. I looked through the blind and down the ravine at the sick industry of the Sasquatch below. Our eyes didn't yeah. move, but the sense I knew that it entered my perception like a spear hurled unerringly at my target. So yeah, that was the that was the part that I I, I just marked it with a pencil too on the um I don't remember why I, I dog-eared that, but I think I was probably thinking that that fit more mission statement too. I don't know. No, it works a little bit. Sure. It's funny because it was like two weeks ago that I read, or two, you know, I don't remember why I did that. Okay. So this book, how much of an influence working with uh, an editor, Ross is a, an incredible editor. And even though I haven't actually 
published anything with Ross. Um, he gave me feedback on a short story once. So I, I did have the experience of, of working with him on just briefly. Yeah. I had, I had written a story for a reading at the Lovecraft Fest and for, and I asked a couple of people to, to look at it. Look at it. And it was raw. So I did have the fun experience of working with him that one time, but he is great to work with. He has been yeah. a real, uh, a real blessing in my, in my, in my career so far. Uh, just very, very free with his, very free with his time, you know, uh, a wonderful source of, uh, you know, basically industry understanding that I did not have. I did not have. And I think a lot, and I think, you know, I went through most of my writing career so far. I, I went into it with no understanding of what exactly I was, you know, what exactly is the thing that I'm getting into? You know, what are, what are the goals here? What are the, uh, you know, what's the, what's the timeline look like? You know, what's my life in this going to look like? And I don't think anybody really has a clue when they're going in. They have some general, you know, large ideas about it. But so, yeah, getting an editor like Ross is to basically get an inside you know, more of an inside look as to, you know, how the sausage gets made. And then, yeah, it has actually affected how I make the sausage, right? How I actually write the book because working with Ross showed me what, what was important about the novel and what wasn't. So we were able to make, you know, some fairly decisive edits where I just, you know, you're, you're right, Ross, that's, that's, that there's no reason for that to be there. That is extraneous stuff. You know, I wanted, we, we both wanted a, not necessarily a lean, you know, a lean book, but, you know, we wanted it to be somewhat muscled, but we just wanted it to be, uh, what's the word? Athletic, targeted, you know, the ability to, the ability to write something that's, you know, not going to not going to flap off in a lot of different directions. So it was good. It was good to have him there to sort of like bring me, bring me focus in on the focus in on the book itself, as opposed to all the stuff that surrounds it. And there's a lot of stuff that surrounds it, as you, as 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 you've noted. You know, I pulled from a lot of different sources to 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 write this. The climate was interesting. I've noticed you mentioned climate earlier. I actually went to instead of instead of doing the whole internet research thing. I'm like, look, I've got a university right here. You know, we've got the University of Victoria right here. It's like 10 minutes away. And this was, of course, before COVID, but I basically went to the university and I made appointments with all the climate scientists and sat down for coffees and little lunches and got some horrifying details. It, it, is, it, is, it is very worth our, our time and consideration because, yeah. you know, and I've basically put forward the scenario, you know, the mid-range scenario that I was, that I was uh, you know, educated about by these climate scientists. The mid-range scenario where, you know, most of the Pacific Northwest turns into the Cretaceous period. <laughs> the wildfires and all the other aspects. And they're like, well, if we don't get this sorted, you know, in the next 50 years, yeah, bad scene. So it was worth, it was worth investigating that. And I, I loved the fact that I went in and did it myself. I wouldn't talk to actual people. <laughs> well, that's awesome. um, okay, so uh, as far as Stonefish, what would you say was your, I, you know, I, there's a podcast I listened to and it, it's a screenwriting one and the guy always says, what was your most difficult 
he always asks people, what was your most difficult day on the writing and how did you solve it? And I think that's a great question because I think, you know, as writers, we always have like, maybe there's one part that challenged us the most or is the hardest part to write. And I think talking to writers directly about like how we fix those problems is, is, is a really good way to uh, help out other writers. So did you have any part of this book that you found the most challenging? The most challenging part to write. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I could say the whole thing was challenging. I found I had to relearn how to, well, not relearn how to write per se, but it was such a different book than anything I'd written before. I think I struggled a lot with the structure of it, as we mentioned before right, where I didn't know, I knew how it was going to end, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. So I think the most difficult part for me was just being able to, to sit down and say, all right, I'm going to write this section. It's going to be about X. Maybe I'll throw in a little Y, but not quite sure how it was going to look at, at the end and feeling trepidation about go, moving forward. Moving forward with this book was difficult because I was like, what am I doing? And I said, well, just do something and see what happens, right? See how it fits in. So, uh, yeah, I think the maybe I'll just do better plotting next time. I don't know. But for if, if I had any issues, it was usually with, what am I going to do now? Here I am at like halfway done the thing. I can kind of see what it looks like, but not, you know, how you reach a point where there's only so much you can, there's only so much you can think about doing. And sometimes you just have to sit down and start banging it out. And that was hard to, uh, that was hard to adjust to just right because you should today, you know, not because you know what you're doing, Scott, <laughs> but just because you, you should put, you, you should put down a couple of pages today. Well, it's funny because part of the thing of me being an outliner and a, a structure guy is that I can't imagine writing a book if I didn't have at least a list of scenes or, or parts or chapters that I have to tick off. And I have to say like, okay, I wrote that part. I wrote that part. I don't right. have to be beholden to it. Like if I, you know, I was just joking about, um, Anthony and I are working on the screenplay and I'm writing the first draft nice. and uh, the first 10 pages is I do all the things that the outline tells me I need to do, but any semblance of what I put in the outline of the story is not there at all. <laughs> I just did ah, completely right. different. However, there are certain things that story-wise needed to happen. They're all there but I just figured out a totally different way to get from A to Z or Z if you're <laughs> right. Um, it, like I found a different way to get there. And I think right. that's, if you're going to outline, that's one of the important things, but <clears throat> you, you got there, the structure works, the book is great. Um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, in, in some, depends on the year if I read it. I read it in 2020, which is a, a fucking incredible year for books. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
be higher in my best reads of the year because it is very good. Um, but goddamn, 2020, there was a bunch of fucking masterpieces that came out this year. Holy shit. Uh, yeah. uh, besides uh, The Only Good Indian and Survivor Song and Mallory, there's just a bunch of incredible shit that came out this year. And unfortunate. Um, but I consider Stonefish to be one of those, those great books that came out. One of the other things that I really appreciate about it is because you're with Word Horde and with Russ is you have a certain amount of freedom working uh, independently uh, with an independent uh, publisher and author who gets it. That's great. That's and, true. Uh, Stonefish is a very unique book and um, it, it comes out, it comes bleeding off the page. And I uh, really appreciate my time with it. Is there anything else you want to say about the writing process of Stonefish since we're still in spoilers? I think I've pretty much covered it. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I, you know what? It's it's funny that you ask that because I think process is something that changes so much over time. Currently, I'm like I'm working on my current the next novel, which is forcing me to reevaluate it all again uh, because this one will require different process. So I think process is something that I'm never married. I'm never married to it at any at any given time, but you know it's an evolving thing. So. We will see if my process gets any uh, sharper or easier on myself <laughs> with this next one. Yeah, well, it, depends on the, it depends on the writer. I, I, you know, I, as a human being, like, I like taking the same path to, like, I, I have a, mm. I'm an eight minute walk from work, right? And I walk the same way every day. And I, and, and yep. I tend to, walk or bike the same paths like to the same places so it's not unusual that i would try to write each book or each writing project in a similar fashion but it doesn't mean that i for certain times i haven't broken out of it but i i think that you got to do what you got to do for for the process i'm excited to see what you do next um stonefish is great so just one last pitch for uh for the book stonefish um and i also owe anthony because uh he he did not want me to wait around to read it so oh, he just thanks, it. So, um <laughs> because he was afraid that i would take too long and he's like i'm just gonna fucking buy it for you and uh so he he we had a we did a writer's retreat in june and he showed up with a copy of stonefish for me nice so, so well, thank uh, him for me that's yeah, great you, you owe anthony because it may May have been another little a little while before I got to my TBR is huge, uh, yeah. as you can imagine. And uh, but his his uh, uh, forcefulness about the book is was one of the things that uh, made sure that I read it. So uh, shout out to Anthony again. All right. All right. Scott, anything <laughs> else you want to tell everyone before we go? You know, I just uh, I hope everyone has a deeply restorative year coming up <laughs> you know a, a restorative year it's here at here at my house you know my family and i we've basically been living outside of time since christmas eve you know we haven't really gone anywhere or done anything we're just enjoying the the you know the important stuff and i feel like we need to just continue doing that as we move into 2021 because can we do can we do 2020 again? I don't think we can. You know, we need a complete shift of attitude and 
you know, coming back to focus on the on the stuff that actually makes us happy. Yes, so for me, for me, writing and family, I'm like, let's just do this. I've been very fortunate during the pandemic because, due to a uh, due to a uh, congenital lung condition, right? My bosses at my day job, uh, which you know, which I'd like to ditch eventually in favor of this, right? Sure. This is what's been wonderful about having all this time off. Is like, even though it's been difficult to get back into the writing with the kids around and working with my wife working from home and all the rest is, you know, we're all in these weird situations where it's like, I still would rather do this than any other job. I would rather just write, you know, if I can make that. So I hope that, you know, everyone can, you know, experience a restorative new year and, you know, get, get onto the things that, that give them the most pleasure and the most happiness in their lives. That's what I want for myself. So <laughs> I, I've been pretty much not going out for the last couple of days other than to yeah. exercise. So it's funny because I realized I hadn't worn my mask in like four or five days because Woo! I haven't gone anywhere. Right. And, and um, so like today might be the first time in a while, like I, I haven't gone shopping anything. Like I just, I, I just been home and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird experience. The pandemic is, was super helpful for me for finishing the novel that I finished last year. Because mm -hmm. uh, I finished it in near record time and and it's the longest thing I've ever written. So, uh, nice. and I don't think I would have done that if we didn't have, because I wrote the first 40,000 words like at the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think for some of us creatives, it's it's been helpful, um, but uh all right. Um, enjoy the view of uh, right. <laughs> for me. Like, go take a look outside of the Juan de Fuca for me. And uh, if I just stand up and move a little bit backwards, I can see Port Angeles through my balcony window. <laughs> yeah. My wife wanted to shout out Fernwood neighborhood. So, Fernwood. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we definitely enjoyed Victoria. We, we uh, it, it's a great place. Um, come back, come back. When this is all over, come back. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I got to eat at uh, Green Cuisine again. I really love that place. Uh, um, and uh, God, man, Victoria, the bookstores. I got to I got to say that Russell's. I think, Green, I think Green Cuisine might be out of business. Ah, bummer. All right. <laughs> yeah, well, and Russell's will. Um, uh, I bought my paperback of Wet Bones is my favorite horror novel. Nice. And uh, I bought that at Russell's. And one of the things that um, really excited me about that is, you know, John Shirley is one of my favorite authors. And when I walked into Russell's, they had like, um, like, like a giant section of, you know, which maybe says that people in Victoria and like, we're not holding on to John Shirley books, but I was excited <laughs> to find, I got, uh, my paperbacks of Wet Bones and City Come a Walking, which I consider as two masterpieces there. So I uh, always have fondness in my heart for for uh, that particular shopping trip. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a victory. <laughs> Treasures, Treasures uh, discovered. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful city and it just, uh, I love, it's like the size of Pittsburgh, but but pretty everywhere. And, um, and uh, try. <laughs> Yeah, it's the yeah. climate mostly. <laughs> yeah, I know it's great. I, we love Victoria, um, so it's hard for me to stop talking about it. But all right, uh, <laughs> Scott, thanks for uh, joining the podcast. We'll uh, David, thank you. 
I'll look for uh, um, reasons to have you back on. Uh, right on. And uh, um, definitely uh, um, looking forward to what you got next. So thanks for joining Postcards from a Dying World. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.